right, welcome to Eden's Apple, a podcast about the portrayal of women inside of mythology as well as specifically in scriptures and religion. We just kind of dissect and look into how women are portrayed and like maybe what the the purpose of doing that at the time was for these different scriptures. Today we're going to be talking about the women inside of the Book of Mormon. All three of them. <laughs> There's really not a whole lot to say about the the women that are specific to Mormonism, but we'll we'll for sure touch on all of those ladies: Isabel, Abish, and Sariah. I'm joined by Kim. Hello, I'm Kim. You can find me on various places online as Tumbleweed Witch or the Tumbleweed Witch. And I'm just super fascinated to hear the way that women are portrayed in the Book of Mormon. It is such an interesting reflection of the time period in which it came to be, because I feel like that era was even more restrictive for women and what women could do and what personality they were allowed to have than the original Bible times. And that's like a really kind of a common theme when we'll be looking at all of these three like Mormon specific women. So the Book of Mormon, if you don't already know, is a set of scriptures that was supposedly discovered or written by Joseph Smith in the 1800s. And so it's, it's kind of like, the way I kind of describe it is like Bible fanfic. So this, <laughs> he uh, kind of wrote a version of what he thinks might have happened in the, the Americas while everything else was going on inside of like the the Holy Lands. And, it, um, it does kind of make me wonder if he was like just that crazy or if he had some conscious awareness where he was like, well, I'm going to hijack this already established religion and kind of redirect its course to this other path and like use that as a way to control people. You know, it's certainly a thought like I, it's not the smallest book. Like this is, he spent a lot of time writing this. So I really do think that he thought he was a prophet of God, that he had these ideas and these beliefs and he believed that it was, you know, uh, from oh. God, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know what else I learned recently that I hadn't actually known was that Mormonism was not the only thing going on new. It was like an entire region of America that was just having new religions pop up left and right. This one was like, just catching for some reason. I don't, you know, <laughs> maybe it was yeah. all the children you had to have to be a part of it. <laughs> it's like such a strange, like, focused space for a whole bunch of people to start start new religions. Yeah, maybe we can have a, a podcast sometime specifically around, like, that time period and the types of religions that... Maybe if had gotten popular, we would have found ourselves practicing. I know that there's I mean, things like, like this, the Seven Day Adventists and, 
you know um the debate about what survived and why it survived as opposed mm-hmm. to other things is so interesting it really is a lot of fun to re- fun to research i'm totally down to oh yeah yeah let's do it if we find enough content we could even probably break it down by the dips the different uh ones that popped up we can develop a rating system yeah <laughs> Best niche pop-up religion of the 1800s to the worst. The the three women. And it, it's not to say there aren't more women. There are references to females. I even did a quick, um, you know, I actually ended up downloading the Book of Mormon PDF from oh, wow. the website. And I was wow. like, holy crap, this is this is revolutionizing the way that I read scripture because I can do like a find search and just searched for Soraya and I searched just the word she as well um, mm-hmm. just to see how many times it references like females it's it's really curious because you even notice inside of um, patterns uh, like when they're referencing something with a female gender it's usually like temptation or they they refer to two different kinds of heaven. The bad heaven or the hell is female. They refer to it with the female form. So I was like, that's so interesting. Like prose yeah, being so specific like that. That's it's it's not nothing, well, you know. The thing like the Bible doesn't have one opinion about women because it's mm-hmm. a collection of writings from a, a lot of people spanning a lot of time. So there are lots of varied female characters in the Bible. The Book of Mormon is really like this one dude's opinion about women. Yeah, I mean, there has been, um, and I wonder if I could find an older copy uh, I'd have to find an older physical copy of the Book of Mormon because it has been revised over the years. There were some things that were racist that were oh, changed. Cool. Yeah, so there were revisions to the Book of Mormon and um, just like things that they would teach in the Mormon uh, religion because after segregation was abolished. How did they handle that in the Mormon church? I mean, at least in the sect that I grew up in, we were very hardcore, like the word of the Bible is God's literal truth dictated to us. And you can't ever counter that. So I I feel like we held a lower view of Mormons because they did revise sometimes. I feel like that is a not a good worldview to have. The way that it worked for Mormons is that you have a modern-day prophet. So we still have active prophets in the church. Because there's modern-day prophets, they'll say, you know, like, one prophet interpreted something a certain way, and then that our modern-day prophet interpreted, you know, the same teaching in a different way that we feel is more accurate and, you know, given more information or, you know, like, deeper ruminating with God and praying and and trying to find the answer and you know they'll 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 really talk it up to be like he he fasted for seven days and before God came to him and told him that what I said you know what that word meant before is different now but you know it really doesn't make a difference because in my church we had modern day prophets whether we called them that or not we were subject 
to their interpretation of the Bible, and it changed frequently. So, because yeah, even it, just having a a preacher that preaches something a particular way changes its meaning. The first thing actually that pushed me into atheism was <laughs> just the sheer unlikelihood that we of all people in the universe had the correct information right (laughs) like it's a game of telephone and this is old 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 book you know how are you supposed to have all that information right and then just given the vastness of space i assume there has to be something else out there somewhere and we have to be right for those aliens too we, we had the right Jesus born on the right planet. Just everything fell into place. And, and the Earth is a pretty fantastic thing and very uncommon. And there's certainly not a lot like it. I just, there's, you can only suspend your disbelief so much. Uh, especially when yeah, humans are involved that have motives. And I guess to talk about the first woman that is brought up inside of the Book of Mormon And it is actually kind of like on the first page because the Book of Mormon is a story about a very specific family. An account of Lehi and his wife, Sariah, and their four sons, uh, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi. Nephi is kind of like the main protagonist. He's, He's like the prophet that you follow throughout everything. There's a lot of comparisons I can make to a Moses type, you know, archetype for him because they're out in the wilderness. They, you know, they're, they're trying to find the promised land, et cetera. And the promised land for them is Utah. So it's very much like Moses. (laughs) If I do uh, remember anything about the formation of the Mormon religion, Utah was not the first place that was the promised land right yeah there were multiple places but that they they ended up settling and then utah ended up being like the place where they were not uh forced to move because of persecution of course i've i've watched uh all of the trey parker mormon skits and movies because it's just you know, we like to, I mean, I poked fun at Mormonism well before, you know, I even left the church. I feel like the Mormons that I did know had a good natured spirit about it, where it almost came off as like, yeah, okay, sure. What of it? We're using it to be, to try to be kind of nice to each other. And we're not going to be dicks about it. Are you going to be dicks about it? Right. <laughs> Yeah, and oftentimes they always told you to, you know, be really kind and show people that Mormons are good people and et cetera, et cetera. But then also with the caveat that you're going to heaven and they may not be going to heaven. So, you know, like if they, if you want your friend to go to heaven, you should definitely have them, you know, join the church. Sariah being like a super matriarchal, I mean, not, not even matriarchal. She doesn't really have a lot of power, but she's the mother figure. She plays as a doting, you know, like, mother figure. You at least have to have one girl, or where did they all come from? Right. Exactly. It's very cut and dry because you've got your young women's and your young men's. These are the the after-school activities or stuff that they would sometimes host through the church. Where uh, on Wednesday nights, the girls would go to young women's, and the men would, or the boys would go to young men's, and... 
the boys would, you know, get be taught how to hunt or, you know, shoot crossbows or do something manly. They went and they did something like doing wood shop. And it was just all very gendered. There, you know, all these all these things that they associated with, you know, being manly. If my church was offering archery lessons, I could have them because I was a girl. I would have destroyed something. Yeah, maybe not in girls' camp because that was kind of like just whatever was offered. Mormons do. I I feel have a tendency to be kind of more outdoorsy. So when I went to girls' camp, we did do archery and kind of the the more fun. That's good. That's good. Physical things. You guys have to sit inside and do needlepoint or something. <laughs> well, that that that's I guess where I was going with um, young women's is that was like the weekly meetup, and it was always like cooking, or they would have a guest come in, like someone who did Pilates, and you know, if if we had oh, wow. a guest, it, we would have like some Mormon, someone new, or someone's friend who was at least Christian would come and talk to us about something. And it was usually like feminine tasks. It was like yeah. making sure you know how to cook a loaf of bread, or making sure you knew how to um, mend or sew. All, all great practical skills that I yeah. have. I'm really, you know, I honestly, I learned a lot from those things, Uh, but they were just, I guess, more gendered. Like the the boys would just do different things that were perceived as masculine. And that I think is the point. It's not that you regret having to learn those things, but it's just everybody should be learning them. Yeah. I mean, the boys and the girls could definitely have done all those things together, but that's just not what they were teaching them. It's so fascinating to me because my church, even though we were really aggressive about the gender roles and everything, there was absolutely nothing in place to teach housekeeping or homemaking the girls at large. It was all supposed to be done within the family. I think that's part of the reason why the Mormon religion appeals to so many people is because there was so much support. And that's kind of where the tithing comes in. With Mormons, you're supposed to give 10% of your income to tithe to the church so that yeah, they the, can... The 10% is the same uh, in the branch of Christianity I was in as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, I mean, at least when we, you know, we gave her 10% or whatever, they were doing things at the church that at least we're giving back to the the members, like having the young good. women's or having daycare sometimes for people. Mormons seem far more community oriented. Oh than, yeah, uh, the church I went to, and I I think that that really speaks to small families or like single parents, where they're just like they just need to feel like they belong. And I know that for my family that. Uh, Mormon services, if you told them you needed something and you were a regular attending member, they would sometimes pull through for you. Like, I remember getting a fridge that way. I remember there were months where my parents had a hard time with their finances and they would bring food from the food bank, stuff like that. To Mormonism's credit, honestly, I think, because like in our church, we would have the cult practice of what they call love bombing which is when someone new enters the fold, you 
like barrage them with love and help and kindness and all sorts of things to get them emotionally attached to the place and then wean them off of that you're like now you have to do stuff for us if you want to stay mormonism they really just seem straight up invested in helping support the, their communities i think it all kind of comes to a certain end because it, it is reciprocal like when other people are having a hard time or all of the people who were given positions in the church were usually also like active community members, people who owned businesses. You know, once you kind of became part of the clique, you know, they wanted to keep you in the clique. They wanted to keep you active. But it was also people who were independently wealthy a lot of the time. So mm -hmm. like they had this extra time that, you know, like you had to at least be like middle class to get a position. Like I'm sure there's lots and lots of cynical implications involved in all of that but just as compared to the church that I was in I'm yeah. like man at least they're doing something no I and I agree like I think that it, it definitely probably I mean everyone has a different experience but in my experience in a small town in Arizona they did have a sense of community and there was like everyone knew each other's names. To a certain degree, they were certainly invested in you, especially if you've been bringing your kids the way that my parents were like every single Sunday mm -hmm. and having us go to the after school activities and all that stuff. So uh, and I've I've made some lifelong connections through the church and. I mean, they certainly still have me on a list somewhere because I still get Mormons coming to my house and calling me up and sending me messages on <laughs> Facebook. But I, I, it's it's just one of those things that um I just deal with and it's fine because some of those people do end up being, you know, genuinely good. But I think it's about the average, the ratio of people, you know. Right. Some people are just good and some people aren't and it doesn't matter whether they're religious or not. Some people are just going to find a way to exploit a system to meet their own personal power needs. And some mm -hmm. people are just going to be genuinely good people who care and want to help. Kind of just the way things are. And I think that there's also kind of this separation from the scripture for some people where they're just there for the community. And then the scripture is just like an afterthought. <laughs> other, other than the parts that they feel like they pick and choose. So it just really depends, you know. I always um. felt like that was kind of Mormonism's like biggest strength of character was around acknowledging that the community is just as important, if not more important than what your book says. Yeah. Whether or not you use that to generate like good ends or if you're just using it to like, I don't know, drum up the tithes. I don't know. But well, they they really, really want you to conform but they're also probably not going to excommunicate you for no reason. And I think that that probably helps its longevity because that's mm -hmm. one of the things that got me out of my cult that I was in was not that I stopped believing at, uh, in God altogether initially, but it was inconsistencies in internal doctrine and practice. Mm. You know, we're told that we have to adhere to this specific version of the bible and that interpretation and the way that we know whether something is true or not is whether or not it stands up compared to the bible so then when you're in that system and you start seeing 
internal hypocrisy is it all falls apart very quickly mm-hmm. you're like the whole thing is built on me believing that the bible is 100 truth according to how we preach it and so you can't go against that once you start to get to a certain age and you become cynical like that uh, and not everyone i think even gets to that point but now you know especially now much more mature and having had so many experiences and revisiting this scripture, you know, I see, I see it for what it is. And mm-hmm. I don't think as an adult, I could really knowingly partake in it, regardless yeah. of the community. And totally get that. Yeah. Just with this uh, example with Soraya, where it's just like, she really is just the trope of a mother. The main story that I found that really seemed to focus at least for a little while on Soraya is if anyone wants to look it up, the specific example, it's a Nephi 438, 5 to 11, chapter. So it talks about Soraya complaining against Lehi. She's complaining against her husband. We're off to the races. Yeah, exactly. So just like the nagging wife, you know, like she plays the nagging wife who only ever cares about her sons. So uh, at the beginning of each chapter, there's usually like a synopsis. So it's like Soraya complains against Lehi. Both rejoice over the return of their sons. They offer sacrifices, the plates of brass containing writings of Moses and the prophets, and the plates identify Lehi as a descendant of Joseph. Lehi prophecies concerning his seed and the preservation of the plates. He's prophesying about how Joseph Smith, oh no, no, about how Lehi uh, descends from Joseph inside of Joseph, the, the Joseph from the Bible. But, uh, yeah, the Bible's also very concerned about uh, what dude was the seed in your ancestry. Right. Yeah. So you come from legit seed and you're allowed to, you know, like, make the rules. That's that's what it really comes down to. Yeah. So basically, uh, her sons come back, you know, from wandering around inside of the desert. And uh, so Soraya was exceedingly glad for she truly had mourned because of us. Two, for she had supposed that we had perished in the wilderness, and she had also complained against my father, telling him that he was a visionary man, saying, Behold, thou hast led us forth from the land of our inheritance, and my sons are no more, and we perish in the wilderness. So she's just like, You're crazy. I'm in the middle of nowhere. And my sons are dead. (laughs) We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And is it after this manner of language had my mother complained against my father? And it had come to pass that my father spake unto her, saying, I know that I'm a visionary man. I know I'm crazy. (laughs) For if I had not seen the things of God in a vision, I should not have known the goodness of God, but had tarried at Jerusalem and had perished with my brethren. But behold, I have obtained a land of of promise. Do rejoice, yea, and I know that the Lord will deliver my sons out from the hands of Laban and bring them down again unto us in the wilderness. Okay, I'm just going to say that this guy sounds like a self-insert OC. I know! So, see, this is is my... um... This is my thing about Joseph Smith is that I think that he just, you know, it's Jesus fanfic. It's Moses fanfic more specifically. 
So he self-inserted him as Nephi, which is like the main protagonist type character inside of this. So after this manner of language, my father, Lehi, comforted my mother concerning us. And while we journeyed in the wilderness up to the land of Jerusalem. Oh, first person too. Yeah. So it talks in the first person in Lehi's perspective. Or in Nephi's perspective. It might be really important for other people to know that uh, these are all written from the perspective of the prophet. So they're all in first person perspective. So that's what makes it feel extra. Yeah, it's extra, extra fanficy because of the first person perspective. <laughs> but it also makes it so easy to consume. I think as a reader, because you like you do actually get to put yourself in the position. Already, it sounds like a much less miserable read. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's definitely more modernized, and that's of course because of the time it was written and who wrote it, and it's fanfic. So I'm sorry, Mormons. Um, sorry, not sorry. You were in it. You get to laugh about it. I, I mean, I'm allowed. Like, I went through the full ringer. I, I got baptized for the dead and everything. It was... Oh, wow. I wore the funny underwear. <laughs> I was just... Oh, I was just talking to my friend the other day. I, w- I acted in Hell Houses. Oh, wow. I, I acted in uh, the haunted houses we would put on. The that, Hell Houses. Yeah, that were all just... Like, every scene was just a collection of intense triggers. One year, played in this haunted house play we did. A girl who was in her house and her alcoholic dad and her mom were in a fight. So she runs out of the house. Trigger warning. uh, Two guys find her in the park and rape and murder her. And then she goes to hell for disobeying her parents oh my god that's all terrible but then you get to the end and then you're like really (laughs) like what even is the point we can't do anything right the end parents are being tormented for like fucking up like demons are showing them their children being tortured in hell oh gosh feel bad like yikes that is insane (laughs) yeah no it's bonkers I mean, there is definitely nothing like no imagery like that. And then I think that's why, you know, there's like the fire and brimstone interpretation. And then there's like milk toast, like, oh, he'll forgive you, you know, just come and join us. And, you know, like Mormons are extreme, but they're just not extreme, you know, in the, the fire and brimstone aspect. Yeah, we, we avoided the media as best we could the last part of this little snippet that's really like the main story that even has her in it complains about leaving her home and complains about you know like her her kids possibly dying which i mean i would complain against him too if i thought that yeah those are all valid reasons to be upset (laughs) but lastly um it says she spake saying now i know of surety that the lord hath commanded my husband to flee into the wilderness yea and i also know of the surety that the lord hath protected my sons and delivered them out of the hands of laban and given him them power whereby they could accomplish the thing which the Lord hath commanded them. How you know that this is a self-insert OC. Exactly. You know, she's she's there to be like a naysayer, like the, the complaining wife. 
And then she goes full circle to, you're the best. I should have believed you the whole time. I should have never said anything against my husband. And and only in a single page, too. So She's one of, you said, like, three? One of three. Yeah, everything else that includes her more or less is just as reference that she is also traveling with them. The family's traveling together, but all of the action and descriptions, they all surround the brothers and the father the most. And, you know, they referenced her as the the mother of Nephi. So she just, Mm -hmm. that's just kind of her place in the story. I'm interested to see what kind of archetypes these other two women are because if you're only going to have three women in your book what you choose to make them sound like tells a lot about you and it it really it becomes pretty clear um especially when we bring up Isabel what does Isabel sound like Jezebel yeah yeah so she is a Jezebel, of course. Isabel, Jezebel. Oh, I, I almost think that maybe he, like, he just forgot the word for Jezebel because um, she's only mentioned once. Uh, the name of the, the chapter it's in, the preface for the chapter is Sexual sin is an abomination. Corinthian sins kept from Zoramites from receiving the word. Christ's redemption and retroactive in saving the faithful who preceded it. Gotta get on people about those sexual sins. Yeah, the only spot where it really talks about her, and it's so short, I'm just going to read this this little bit here. And now, my son, I have somewhat more to say unto thee than what I said unto thy brother. For behold, have ye not observed the steadiness of thy brother, his faithfulness and his diligence in keeping the commandment of God? Behold, has he not set a good example for thee? For thou didst not give so much heed unto the words as did thy brother among the people of the Zoramites. Now this is what I have against thee. Thou didst go on unto boasting in thy strength and thy wisdom. And this is not all, my son. Thou didst do what that which was grievous unto me. For thou didst forsake the ministry and did go over into the land of Siron, among the borders of the Lamanites, after the harlot Isabel. Oh, boy. (laughs) So she's introduced as the harlot Isabel. Like, you couldn't put, (laughs) like, couldn't nail the point further anymore. I think that that women were used in, like, a few different ways. Like, they were either temptations, like the ultimate temptress, as angels, they were just symbols of purity because often angels would appear as women and like these really pale, frail, you know, like magical creatures. And the Bible are always like genderless, masculine leaning creatures. And there are male, uh, there are male angels. And the, the angel that came to Joseph was supposedly a male angel. There's definitely some lady angels, and they're all described as being, like, the fairest, most beautiful virgins. Of course. And they use the word virgin, and and, uh, the way that I found the references for the angels being feminine was when I searched virgin uh, in this PDF, and it was like, oh, (laughs) it mentions a virgin angel, like, over and over again. I was like, that's a little weird. 
you know, they mentioned that, you know, of course that the son of the son of God was born of a virgin and so that's that's where a lot of the references were coming from too. I thought it was interesting that they said they were described the the female angel as virginal and it's just like I mean what does that have to do with anything do you, how do you know like if you look at the biblical angels you don't want to think about any of those things having sex they right. were like <laughs> insane crazy monsters yeah with the, the eyes and the, like, it's really wild wings and every that's why every time in the bible when they show up the first thing they say is fear not uh, fear not <laughs> No, don't be. No, I, I said don't be scared. Don't run. Don't run. <laughs> God needs to tell you something. And this is just the package it comes in, baby. <laughs> but yeah, the, the rest uh, that they really have to say about um, harlot Isabel is, yay, she did steal away the hearts of many. But this was no excuse for thee, my son. Thou shouldst, <laughs> thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted (laughs) that's amazing look i know she's a huge slut and everybody likes her but that's no excuse for you i know (laughs) i know how tempting it was but you should have been better i know she'd be thick with many c's so yeah that's that little tiny snippet about isabel (laughs) who's a harlot and has stolen many hearts you, you don't even get to meet her? And you don't even get to meet her. It's just a, a conversation that they're having with uh, Alma in this case. She, she's rapidly become my favorite character. Yeah, Isabel, the, the heartbreaking harlot that there's literally just like roughly two paragraphs that reference her. I wish there was even a story like related to it, but it's they just drop that in there where they're like, it's yeah. So- just that sentence about I know she she was swaying lots of hearts but it adds so much backstory like you can tell there's more there yeah where's the rest I you know I want an extension of this fanfic where we hear about his heart being broken by Isabel call a prophet and tell him we want to know more about Isabel tell me more she sounds rad yeah so that that's Isabel, everybody. Good job. Clap, clap. You go, Isabel. <laughs> and then uh, lastly, there's Abish, which is kind of a more interesting. Her purpose is, to me, probably the most interesting. But once again, it's, you know, she they just pop that name in there for flavor. And it, it does require like a little bit of context as to why she's significant. So uh, this is in chapter 19 in Alma. And Lamoni receives the light of everlasting life and sees the Redeemer. His household falls into a trance and many see angels. Amon is preserved miraculously. He baptizes many and establishes a church among them. So for, so in this particular story, you're playing as Alma, this other male protagonist that comes uh, later on after Nephi. I forget the exact familial relationship that he has with Nephi, if any. But usually these are all just like stories of their children and their children's children, etc. Right, right. And it came to pass that after two nights they were about to take the body and lay it to sepulcher. 
uh, which they had made for the purpose of burying their dead. So yeah, there's this um, this house of non-believers. They wanted to, because it's a it's a kind of a weird situation. They really wanted uh, them to be like buried as like a Mormon uh, because of their beliefs, and they didn't. But the the house didn't believe in God. Like they mm-hmm. had some other religion that they believed in. The simplest way to put it is God casts a spell on okay. this house. It's a huge multi-family house with tons of servants. And it's like um, uh, a bunch of people live in the same house. And they fall prey to like this like delusion. They're like freaking out. And they're like, what's going on? And I'm seeing, seeing angels and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so now when the servants of the king had seen that they had fallen... They also began to cry unto God for the fear of the Lord that had come upon them. For it was they who had stood before the king and testified unto him concerning the great power of Ammon. And it came to pass that they did call on the name of the Lord in their might, even until they had all fallen to the earth. Save it for one of the Lamantish women, whose name was Abish. Everyone's tripping balls instead of this, like, they're all lamenting that they didn't believe in God, and they're all having this, like, epiphany that they should believe in God again, uh, except for Abish. She had, she having been converted unto the Lord for many years on account of a remarkable vision of her father. Abish is just this person who was already converted and like a dutiful, good servant of the Lord because of her her father having already believed in the Lord. Thus, having been converted to the Lord and never having made it known, therefore, when she saw it all, that all the servants of Lamoni had fallen to the earth and also her mistress, the queen, and the king, and Ammon lay prostrate upon the earth, she knew that it was the power of God. And supposing that this opportunity by making known unto the people what had happened among them, that by beholding this scene, it would cause them to believe in the power of God. Therefore, she ran forth from the house to house, making it known unto people. So she ran around and was just like, the reason why this is happening is because you don't believe in Jesus. But she was just kind of this, um, this vessel for storytelling. So she was like the handmaid to the queen and she already believed in the scripture. So she was uh, unaffected when they all kind of fell ill. I like that interesting thing they do right there as well, where Joseph Smith is validating the concept of like spontaneous messages from God. Yeah. <laughs> just like slips a little support for that idea. It's just there. like, yeah, they just come to you. You just, they just show up and, you know, it just happens. It happens, all happens all the time. You're just, it just, just doesn't happen to you yet, you know? Like if you believe hard enough, maybe he'll come to you. Neutral character given the like other two archetypes. Yeah, very neutral, but like, the, I guess the Either concept is just sexy. that, yeah, mom, sexy. Or, I guess, just a prophet of the Lord. Like, I mean, not prophet. You would never call a woman a prophet. You know, she's just um, a follower who was able to pass along the message, I guess. Because, <laughs> yeah, there's really no descriptions. Even with Isabel, they don't describe her. They just say she breaks a lot of hearts and that she was a harlot. I'm 
don't think the Bible gets into that a ton. But they talk no, about, they'll no. talk about at least what people wore. Mythology generally will do that more, a lot, lot more yeah. because it's more poetry than anything. So yeah, that that's um all three of the women in in the Book of Mormon that are specific to the Book of Mormon and. A lot less controversial than some of the women in the Bible get, but they're also less interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's just so little said about them that we can't, it's it's hard to really pull it apart or imagine them in a, a particular way. And they just don't, they don't often interact in meaningful ways with the other characters in the story, so... Yeah, that's that's pretty much all I had for the the women of the Book of Mormon and our other miscellaneous but fun tangents. I hope um, everyone listening in has enjoyed uh, our conversation. And once again, my name is Val the Cybrod. Go be sinners out there. Good night, heathens.